Shabbat Shalom. All right. Romans chapter 9 is where we um, will be beginning this week. Uh, I think we're going to do this in a two-part um, two series. So let's call today part 1. Romans chapter 9 and we'll begin in verse 1. I say the truth in Messiah. I lie not. My con- conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For if it were possible, I would wish to be banished or accursed from Messiah for my Israelite brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. So what a powerful opening, very powerful, as we get into Romans chapter 9 and verse 1. This is talking about really the final restoration of Israel. And it really is the whole zenith of the theological sections of the letter that Paul is writing to the Romans. He's building and building, and this is the zenith of the theological sections of the whole letter. It's about the final restoration of Israel. And you have to remember the whole context and the background to what's going on as this letter has gone out into the community because without understanding the background you're not going to understand why we're at this theological apex zenith in the letter right here in chapter 9 because this letter was sent remember we've spoken about this in the introduction this letter was sent after the edict of Claudius had ended Remember the Edict of Claudius where the Jews were expelled from Rome for about a decade. Now that edict had ended and the Jews were returning back to Rome to a totally different landscape. Because the synagogues had been taken over by the influx of believers in Yahushua from the nations. And all of a sudden now, they come back to this totally transferred landscape after 10 years. And Paul is addressing this because his heart is broken for what? For his Israelite brethren. Because they're the ones that are now returning, the ones that rejected the message. And it's the Gentiles or those from the nations that have accepted the message that have actually now filling the synagogues, filling the congregations. And there is now this conflict, this rub, as the edict has ended and the Jews are returning to Rome after a 10-year absence to find the Jewish landscape has totally been transformed into a Gentile one. It is no longer a Jewish-centric community, but it is a Yahusha-centric community with those from the nations upholding the banner of Yahusha. So, Paul, in this part of the letter, he makes a defense to the assumptions, a defense to the assumptions that the Gentiles were making about three things. And I think the volumes may be a tad too loud. Getting a little bit of feedback, so we could drop that down. But he's making a defense to some assumptions that the Gentiles are making. Three things. 
Number one, they're making an assumption about who God is, who Elohim is. Number two, they're making an assumption about Israel. Who is Israel? And number three, they're making an assumption about Israel's future. Listen, it was so important that Paul had to address these three assumptions that here we are 2,000 years later and we're reading it. Listen, it was so important that Paul had to address these three assumptions that we're reading about it 2,000 years later. Why do I emphasize that to you today? Because we are living in this religious, political world where if Paul was standing in our midst, he would be addressing the believing community around the world about the assumptions they're making about Elohim, about Israel, and about Israel's future. Because according to TBN and the Hebrew Roots Network, you've got it all wrong. Because the assumptions that they're making are in fact what need to be called out. Who is Elohim? Who is Israel? And what is Israel's future? Because if you're looking to that little piece of land in the Middle East that's run by a religious political clique, then you are going to be deceived. And you most probably already have been. And you'll be offended by Paul and by me and others who bring it to your attention that the assumptions that you are making need to be corrected to get in line with the Scripture. So the Gentiles, in fact, in Rome were falling prey to a super-secessionist theology where we have Elohim replacing his chosen people with another group of people. They were falling prey to that super-secessionist theology. And later, in chapter 11, Paul's going to direct his audience to their indebtedness to what? The root of the tree. That we're indebted to the root. Don't forget the root. Don't forget the root. That's going to come up in a couple of chapters. But the theological meat of this section in Romans chapter 9 really is about the salvational historical framework for how Yahuwah envisions the kingdom of Israel in glory. What is the kingdom of Israel in glory? That is what this theological chapter is about. Look what he says as we open up in the text. My Israelite brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, of course, this is speaking about the house of Judah. Who are his kinsmen according to the flesh? The house of Judah. 
Paul's going to bring forth right now the mystery, the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of the New Testament, because he's going to begin by unveiling the identity of the house of Israel, the house of Israel, as opposed to his kinsmen in the flesh who are the house of Judah. So we're going to come into this awakening that not all Israel is Israel, and there's a difference between the house of Judah, the Jews, and the house of Israel, which is dispersed into the nations. And if you understand the great paradigm shift that that will make in your reading of the Scriptures, then the whole word opens up in a new way once you understand the restoration of the whole house of Israel. Now, Paul's charge right here in chapter 9, is the Jews aren't the children of Yahuwah if they've rejected Yahusha. Oh, you can't say that. Listen, the Jews aren't the children of Yahuwah if they've rejected Yahusha. And again, that puts Paul, that puts me at odds with TBN and the Hebrew Roots Network, and those that teach on it. Because the scripture is very clear. Look at verse 2. It actually is very um, reminiscent of Isaiah 51. Look at Isaiah 51 verse 11. Because verse 2 is really pulling from this prophecy. Therefore the redeemed of Yahweh shall return and come with singing unto Zion. And everlasting joy shall be upon their head. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. It's the ingathering of Israel from the nations. But the stern reality, the stern reality of John chapter 1 Verse 11 has smacked Paul right in the face. And that's what he's addressing. He came to his own. And his own received him not. He came to his own. And his own received him not. And now after a 10 year exodus. They're returning with their unbelief back to Rome. And they found that their congregations, their synagogues, are now Yahusha-centric. And now they are full of those from the nations, the house of Israel and the stranger that has joined in. The world has changed and they haven't caught up. And that's the problem. Religious people don't catch up with the prophetic change that the Ruach HaKodesh does, the Holy Spirit does, in revelation in each and every generation. They get stuck. They get stuck. And when we proclaim the message of the Malkitetic priesthood, to those that are stuck, it's an offense and a stumbling block. But to those that are moving in the prophetic forward, it is what? Light, power, and revelation to bring us into the next season as we grow in the faith together. I get comfort from this. 
but as many as received them, to him, them he gave the power to become the sons of Elohim, even to them that believe on his name. What great comfort, of which Paul will later play on in verse 8. Now we get to verse 3, which is very sobering indeed. Listen to this. I mean, think about saying these words. For if it were possible, I myself would wish that I were accursed from Messiah for my Israelite brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. We need to ponder this. Do you realize what he's saying? The ramifications, and then we can skip on to the next verse, but we really can't, not if we're going to do our due diligence as students of the Scripture. Now, the debate abounds as of what he actually means here. Two things. Number one, is it possible that Paul is actually praying to Yahuwah that this action would happen? Number two... Is it a hypothetical action meant to shepherd us back to a textual witness? Anyone can guess which one I'm going with. I'm going with number two. Because I like to live in the safety of the scripture. I'm saying that this is a hypothetical action that is meant... Because he's a student of Gamaliel. He understands the scripture in an amazing way that you and I are just trying to grasp hold of. I believe he doesn't say anything without trying to direct us to previous references in the Tanakh so that we can understand the concrete action of the word as it unfolds in prophecy. I don't believe that he is literally praying this to Yahuwah at this action would come forth, that he would end up being accursed. I believe he is trying to shepherd us to where this first happened in Scripture. Now where? Where in Scripture did somebody stand up and ask that they would be accursed in place of the nation? Where did that happen and what's the context of that? Could he be possibly shepherding us back to that text? Of course, Exodus chapter 32 and verse 31. And does this make any sense with what Paul's talking about and what we're talking about, the revelation of the Malchizedek priesthood? It takes us right back to Exodus 32 verse 31. We find Paul's statement here actually harkens back and links us to Moses' statement at the sin of the golden calf. And returning to Yahuwah, he said, I beseech thee, this people hath sinned a heinous sin, and they have made to themselves gods of gold. Either forgive them this trespass, or if thou do not, strike me out of this book which thou hast written. Make me the accursed. Strike me out. So Paul is using this literary device to take us back so that we're going to understand the framework of what he's talking about. We can't miss this. This is huge. 
Because we're not here just for a Bible study. We're here to systematically go through the Scripture and build upon the Torah and the prophets so that when we see something written in the New Testament, that we pause and we go back, where is he shepherding us to? He's not shepherding us to your opinion or my opinion. He's not shepherding us to some Calvinistic or some Lutheran theology. He's shepherding us back to textual witness where we're going to find the context and then bring that context forward into the very letter that he's speaking to the people. And this is how we get revelation. This is how we get revelation by the Ruach HaKodesh. Paul is using the hypothetical to link us back to Moses. And of course, it brings us full circle into the arms of the accursed one, who is, of course, Yahusha, who bore the sins of Israel and the world for the reconciliation unto Yahuwah. Did he not? Yahusha was granted what Moshe was denied. Yahusha was granted what Moshe was denied, the opportunity to become accursed for the sake of Israel's salvation. This is huge. Right here in one verse. And we could just buzz on through to the next. No. It's an amazing literary example of how Gamaliel taught his student Paul to weave the tapestry of the Tanakh into his very letters. And how many years have people missed this? And the next thing you know, you've got St. Paul that's a Catholic and following the Pope. And you wonder why people nail the law to the cross and they're running around after bunnies and eggs. It's totally divorced from the biblical text. You end up with a Gentile religion and a Gentile theology. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13. Messiah has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Of course we know that's the book of the law. Being made a curse for us for it is written. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. And 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Him who knew no sin, he hath been made sin for us, that we might be made the justice of Elohim in him. Sin for us, that is, to be a sin offering, a victim for sin. So right here, as we open up in chapter 9, verse 3, Paul is using metaphor, and hypothetical as a literary device to draw us from the connecting passages in the Tanakh. And it is powerful. It is powerful. Look at verse 4. Who are Israelites to whom pertains the adoption? Now remember, he's linked us back to a text in the Tanakh. So now as we go forward, we have to remember that. We don't just like move on now. Because he set the stage. So we have to understand that's the platform from which we're launching. And as we go forward, we should be able to build upon that platform. Does that make sense? 
Okay, I just want, I don't want you just to like, okay, that was great, now we move on. Because we want to begin to unfold, but launch from that platform. Verse 4, who are Israelites, to whom pertains the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of Elohim and the promises. Verse 5, who are the fathers and whom... As concerning the flesh, Messiah came, who is over all, Theos, Elohim, blessed be forever. Amen. Verse 4 and verse 5. It was to Israel that verse 4 was given. But it was Israel also who forsook the adoption of verse 4. They forsook the adoption of verse 4 because they're not all Israel who were in the congregation of Israel. We had what? The rebels, those that really weren't converted. This is Paul's point. Not all Israel is in the congregation of Israel. And the point now is going to drive us back. In verse 4 and 5, we're going to find seven blessings that are bestowed upon believers. And these seven blessings that are bestowed upon believers are only made possible because Yahusha became the accursed one. What was denied Moses was bequeathed to Yahusha to become accursed. And Paul is reminding us of the framework of when Moses made that request which was denied and then subsequently given to Yahusha. So if it was given to Yahusha and we are now the recipients of these seven blessings, don't ever let us forget why it was denied to Moses where it was denied to Moses, and the context of what was going on that it was denied to Moses for. Does that make sense? Because I'm not making this stuff up. As some would say, I am. Those that are blind leading the blind, that literally are into religion and are stuck. They're stuck. But those that are following truth and led by his Ruach are what? We make people become unglued. Seven things. Number one, look at the text of verse 4 and 5. Seven blessings bestowed upon us as believers made possible because what was denied to Moses was bestowed upon Yahusha being accursed for Israel's sake. Number one, you get to join Israel the Israel of Elohim. Where did that happen? Where could somebody who was an Egyptian who went through the Red Sea and became part of the congregation, where was it that they joined Israel? Where did that happen in the Bible? Give me a chapter. Huh? Exodus 19.5. Where in the scripture, number two, were you adopted in? Exodus 19.5. Number three, where... Would you witness the very glory of Yahweh? Exodus chapter 20. Number four. Where were you given the book of the covenant, the covenants of promise? Number five. Where were you given the Torah? In covenant. Exodus 19. Number six. 
Where were you given the priestly service of Elohim? And finally, number seven, the fulfilled promises given to Abraham. Seven blessings bestowed upon believers, denied unto Moshe, because they were given the book of the law, but because Yahushua was the one that became accursed, you get back to where? The seven blessings of the book of the covenant bestowed upon you. And this is the literary device that he is using to bring us back so that we can see it all unfold. Exodus chapter 19 verse 4, Israel is adopted. Exodus 20, Israel witnessed Yahweh's kavod, his glory. Exodus 24, Israel was given the covenants of promise, the Torah, the book of the covenant. Exodus 24, Moshe, Aaron, Nadav, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, they all go to worship afar off, etc., etc., etc. We have Israel adopted, glory, covenants, the Torah, the service, the promises. It's all surrounding coming to the mountain, being given the book of the covenant and adopted in as a priestly nation. That's the Israel that are the children of Elohim. What was denied Moses? was bestowed upon Yahushua. Because it was denied to Moses, the book of the law was imposed upon a nation people. But because it was bestowed upon Yahushua, the book of the covenant is now available with all of these blessings to the Israel of Elohim, Galatians chapter 6, verse 16. And he uses a literary device so that we will not miss this. And then he includes seven linguistic, um, the linguistic evidence in these seven bestowed blessings so that we can literally tie those words all the way back to those texts. It's amazing. We have a linguistic connection between Now, as we go further on, theos, used in chapter 9, verse 5 here, and remember Romans chapter 1, verse 25, that can't be missed. Another linguistic connection, and this is about the Creator who is blessed forever and ever. Amen. Attributed to Yahushua as theos. Look that up in the Septuagint. As Elohim. This is powerful. Chapter 1, verse 25, and Romans chapter 9, verse 5, connected there. This linguistic formula is applied to the Creator Yahweh. So there are ramifications here, a huge, a direct Pauline reference to Yahushua being Yahweh. And now we go into verse 6. Not as though the word of Yahweh had failed Israel, For they are not all still Israel who are from Israel. Now, of course, we've got the two Israels here. Look, not as though the word of Yahuwah had failed Israel, for they are not all still Israel who are from Israel. 
not all Israel who are from Israel. Israel in the first instance speaks of Yaakov, Jacob, whilst the second denotes the nation, meaning Israelite or Jewish origin doesn't qualify you as being the Israel of Elohim, Galatians 6.16. It's the, it's the um, second birth that qualifies you as being Israel. So now we've got to get into that, and that makes some people very uncomfortable in the 21st century. What's the biblical view of Israel? Especially when we live amongst Zionism, and APAC, and Wall Street, and Hollywood, all funded by, of course, the Zionists and the state of Israel, which is very different from biblical Israel. So what is the biblical view of Israel? How can we know today who is a true Israelite? How are you supposed to know that? It's anyone who accepts Yahushua and who walks in his commandments. His new covenant Torah is a true Israelite. Because covenant Torah, the book of the covenant, ratified by Yahushua's blood, brings you into an Exodus 19 to 24 Israelite covenant status. Paul's already set us up for that. It brings you into an Exodus 19 to 24:11 Israelite covenant status. If you want an example of Israel in right standing anywhere in the scripture, in fact, the only instance of Israel as a nation in right standing with Yahweh, the only place you will find it is Exodus 19:5 through 24:11. Doesn't exist anywhere else in the whole scripture. Any other reference to Israel, they are not in right standing status. So if you're going to be returned because Yahushua became the accursed one, then where do you return to? Right standing covenant status. That's who Israel is. So you can't be in the priesthood and say you're Israel. Excuse me, you can't be in the priesthood only if you're in the priesthood. You know what I'm saying. <laughs> only if you're in the priesthood, return to that covenant status. Are you truly part of Israel? That's a lot for me to get hold of. So what do you do then with Talmudic Judaism? What do you do with the state of Israel? What do you do with Messianic? What do you do with Zionism? I mean, where does all this fit in? What do you do with John Hagee? And what do you do with Christian Zionism? I mean, what do you do with all this? I mean, how does it fit into our worldview? They are no more, no less than counterfeits counterfeits of the true messianic faith and the true theocratic Israel of which Yahushua is king of. That's the truth. 
Modern Zionism inspired the eventual creation of a counterfeit Israel, which has a man as a secular prime minister. That's not what we're to be looking for. The only true Israel has Messiah Yahushua as its king and believers administering his Malkitzedic priesthood. So many believers have been duped. It's absolutely amazing to me. Literally being duped into supporting an anti-Yahushua counterfeit. Why would you do that? They're supporting a state run by a religious clique. That ho- loathes Yahushua. Absolutely loathes Yahushua. They blaspheme the true Messiah and they have been cut off. That's what the Bible says. They have been cut off. Yet too many believers have been duped to believe that the existence of the Israeli state is some kind of proof that biblical prophecy has been fulfilled in 1948. And then you've got all these timelines and everything's been projected out. And it's like they're using Israel as a state as the fulfillment of biblical prophecy and then projecting their timelines out from it, no wonder all the timelines fail. No wonder we've seen more false prophecy in the past 20 years than we have in the whole of mankind. More false prophecy since 1948. Because this is what we have been recipients of through Zionism in the Christian community known as Christian Zionism that has eventually gone into the messianic realm and everyone's still all rah, rah, rah and it falls flat on its face and everyone starts to become bewildered and they start to lose hope because they have been living as if Yahushua is going to come back tomorrow or next week or the next jubilee or the next biblical feast based upon all these false timelines based upon the false construct that the state of Israel is biblical Israel. And it ain't. It's sad. Genesis chapter 48. Israel, Jacob, takes the sons of Joseph and he bestows his name, Israel, upon the sons of Joseph. Who has the right to the name Israel? Was Judah in the mix? Did Jacob, Israel, place his hand on Ephraim and Judah? Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of Joseph, only the house of Joseph has the legal biblical right to the name Israel. And until the house of Joseph gets taken into the land, then it will be Israel. Right now, right now it's Kazaria. That's the reality. The Khazars, it's Khazaria, that's what it should be named. A Turkic, Mongol, Ashkenaz, Khazaria, some kind of hybrid. And you can call it the state of the Turkic, Mongol, Khazars, that would be fine. 
Or you can talk, call it the Ashkenazi state of the Turkic Mongols, sons of Japheth. That would be fine. At least we'll be honest. Or something, something shorter than that, but include some truth into it, please. But again, that is not politically correct. It's not politically expedient, and it will not fill your religious coffers with billions and billions of dollars. Look at John Hagee before he started preaching the party line and after. And look at the difference in support. It's crazy. So only the tribes of Joseph have the right of the name of Israel forever, not Judah. When the tribes of Joseph return to the land, then, when? Then biblical prophecy regarding Israel will begin to unfold. So there, in fact, are two Israels. Number one, there is the awakened Israel. And number two, there is a fleshly, carnal Israel. So Paul puts two distinct Israels forth in his letters to the Romans and the Galatians, but not two physical Israels or a replacement of Israel. That's very important because the key to what Paul's communicating to the Romans is understanding that the northern kingdom, which is the ten northern tribes, is called Israel in Scripture and never, never ever are the southern tribes of Benjamin, Levi and Judah ever called Israel. So why would you believe that today when it doesn't even exist in here? Why would you believe that? As a believer, whatever denomination you belong to, it's totally unscriptural. Levi, Benjamin, and Judah were always called Judah. They were never called Israel. Never, ever, ever. The first Israel is limited to the physical. The second glorified eternal Israel is a spiritually awakened people coming later by faith. And when you look at Romans chapter 9, verse 6 to 8, you look at Romans chapter 2, verse 28, even John 1, 13, and you can look at these texts. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are descendants are they all Abraham's children. It is not the natural children who are Elohim's children, but it's the children of promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. A man is not a Jew if he is one outwardly. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. Children born not, children born not of natural descent, but born from above, born by Elohim. That's what the Scriptures teach. I don't understand why that is so hard and so politically incorrect when you start talking about it. And I can't tell you how many leaders have come to me in private and say, well, you're right about Israel, but you don't want to be saying that. And if you really want to get ahead, you should take that down off of your website because it, looks, it, it just looks bad. You know, we need to be gathering in the Jews and we need to be a light to the Jews. I'm like, well, firstly, who are the Jews? And secondly, we don't compromise the truth 
for popularity. Well, then it's up to you, but you'll lose your ministry. You'll never be successful. I literally have had those conversations. And I'm like, wow, but you agree with me? That you think it's right? Yes, yeah, but it's not worth it. There's bigger fish to fry. There's a bigger message to get out. You're going to get sidetracked on that. It's a sideline message. Really? Can't tell you how many times. Oh, if you're going to come speak, then really, you know, you should take this down off your website. So I don't go anywhere anymore. But you all come to us. <laughs> Live stream. <laughs> hey, it works. It's great. We're not going to compromise the message. We just invest in the equipment. We invest in the people. And it is what it is. Why bounce around everywhere and compromise the message? For It's not worth it. It's insane to me. So we have fleshly, natural Israel is born of human descent. But eternal, awakened Israel is born of Elohim exclusively apart from human descent and without reference to the human descent of those it inhabits. Fleshly, natural Israel's identity is rooted in the flesh. But awakened, eternal Israel's identity is rooted in the inner man. It is rooted in the spirit. In the spirit. Whereas the state of Israel is national. It's racial. It is racial and it is compared internationally. Many people don't look any further than right in front of their, their nose. Think about it. The state of Israel is national, racial and compared internationally. Whereas awakened eternal Israel is without nationality, but it is transnational and without national racial comparison. It's huge. Why would you support that? Think about it. People don't think about it. It's all rah, rah, rah. Go for the party line. Abraham never inherited the land in his original lifetime, did he? Never. This means the promise of the land has an application to the eternal Israel, the seed of Abraham, or the Israel which is born from above, and those are the sons of Joseph. Grafted in. Were they grafted in? They were grafted in to the tree the tree of Israel. They were born in Egypt. Their father was a Hebrew and their mother was the daughter of the high priest of sun god worship. Kind of sounds like a bunch of you guys. <laughs> right? Mixed up between heaven and hell. The Holy Land and the unholy Catholico <laughs> traditions that many of us were recipients of. 
But when Yahushua the Messiah came to earth, he came not only as the Savior, but he also came as the King. And the political entity that was in play at the time of Yahushua, yes, it was called Judea, but it was run by the Romans with the help of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. It was not the theocratic nation of Israel. Not even when Yahushua was in play there. Its inhabitants were, yeah, there were some true Israelite Jews, the descendants of Judah, but it was an amalgamation mixed up with various others. There were Samaritans, there were Greeks, there were Scythians, barbarians. They were all, that if they were of the faith or looking toward the faith, they were following an apostate version of the Mosaic faith that had been corrupted by the Herodians, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. It was a mess. And that's the last reference we have 2,000 years ago. And it still wasn't biblically restored Israel. Amongst these apostates, yes, there was a minority of believers of the Torah who recognized their Messiah, Yahushua, when he came to be the true true Messiah. And they became the continuation of true grafted in Israel. Those Israelites who rejected Yahushua were literally cut off, broken off from the true Israel. And those who lived as Gentiles, who believed Yahushua, those in Rome that Paul is addressing, that came in, they are what? Grafted in to that tree to be partakers and fatness of fatness of the root. And he's going to get into that in two more chapters' time. So we can see now what Isaiah is talking about in the 10th chapter and the 20th verse. And it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as have escaped of the house of Jacob. Who's the remnant? Is the remnant Judah? The remnant of Israel. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 13, the remnant tithe. The remnant tithe is to be harvested from the priesthood of the end time believing community under the overall leadership of the house of Joseph that is what dispersed and hidden in the nations that is awakened from above and returns back to the covenants of Exodus 19 to 24 in his priesthood. This is amazing because Judah can only be called Israel when the tribes are united as one under the leadership of Joseph. That's key that we understand that. When the kingdom split back in the Tanakh, Judah, Benjamin, and Levi never, ever made any attempt to call themselves Israel, did they? Never. They knew they couldn't. They knew they couldn't. So they picked Judah after the most powerful of the three southern tribes. But we don't even have the real Judah in the land. If you want to know who the real Judah is, we have it up on YouTube. I believe it's called the Migration of Judah. Because the Ashkenazi and the Khazars are not the real Judah. There is APAC and the New World Order for you.
which funds all of the political wars of attrition across the nations. Afghanistan, what's going on in Syria, all of that is funded by the Ashkenazi, those who say they are Israel, but are not Israel. We have to wake up because the very world we live in is all based upon the deception and the lies of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those sons of Satan that have literally influenced a whole generation of globalists. And that's what we're at today. That's the world we live in. And people are blind, unregenerate and blind out there. It's scary. Look at verse 7. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all the children of Israel. But in Isaac shall your seed be called. But in Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Isaac had a son whose name was Jacob, Israel. And Israel bestowed his name upon the sons of Joseph, which is Ephraim, the ten northern tribes scattered into the nation among the dispersion that Paul has in his very midst. Those that are receiving this very letter are the sons of Joseph. And that's what he's addressing To become the Israel of Elohim, the Jews would need to be like Isaac. That's what he's saying. If you're going to become the Israel of Elohim, you need to be like Isaac. You've got to be regenerated. You've got to be in covenant relationship with Yahuwah. You've got to be of the children of promise. You cannot be after the flesh. This is what he's talking about. This verse invalidates the spiritual Israel replacement theology because there is no spiritual Israel. There is no physical Israel. The true Israel has to be both a descendant, physical or by grafting of Jacob and regenerated spiritually like Isaac both physical and spiritual grafting and awakening. Does that make sense? It's a lot to take in, isn't it? But it's true and it's powerful. The unregenerate Jew, listen, the unregenerate, and this is going to offend some people, the unregenerate Jew is no more Israel than a regenerated Aborigine. The unregenerate Jew is no more Israel than a regenerated Aborigine. Think about it. Once regenerated, both, whether it's the Aborigine or the Jew, they have the opportunity to graft into Israel. And that happens through Yahushua, and a return to the mountain status of Exodus 19 through 24 because he took the title of the accursed one, which was denied Moses, but was given to him. That's the true Israel. That's the true Israel. Look at the mountain adopted status of the seven again in verse 4 and 5. Number one, Israel of Elohim. 
Seven adopted statuses at the mountain. The Israel of Elohim. That only happened right standing at the mountain. Number two, adopted. Exodus 19. They were adopted in. You see these words jumping out of your text. Number three, glory. They witnessed the glory right there at the mountain. Exodus 24. Number four, covenants. They were given the book of the covenant, the covenants of promise right there at the mountain. Number five, the law. They were given the Torah, the book of the covenant Torah right there at Exodus 19. The service. They were put under a priestly ordination service right there at the mountain. And finally, number seven, verse four and five, the promises. They fulfilled the promises that were given to Abraham. Say no more. This is a book of the covenant, Malkitzedic status that makes you Israel. Because you came in through the accursed one. That's who Israel is. That's who Israel is. It's very clear. And the only true Israel has to align with that book of the covenant, Malkitzedic status, by coming in through the accursed one. That's the only possibility. You are not Israel unless you fall under this scriptural mandate. One, two, three, four, five, six, and seven. Simple. Verse 8. I hope you understand how absolutely powerful that this is. That I'm not up here as a talking head. I want you to really understand. Because the lies and deception and the twisting and the confusion and yapping away all out here of who's a Jew and oh, this is Israel. It's all a bunch of baloney. Lock it into the word. Take me back to where it is in the Torah and the prophets. Show me the textual witness and I'm with you. I just did that. You cannot refute that because this is what he's talking about. This is the word of Yahweh. It is alive and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. But somebody's got to be bold enough to be able to proclaim it without being bribed and told to shut up and talk about something else. And they've tried. But I'm not going to shut up about it. You see? Because eventually it's going to spread like wildfire because there's going to be an awakening of his people to the truth. And the compromised Zionist cabal out there, whether it be Messianic, Christian, Zionist, they're all going to go running along up to the fake Temple Mount and Ezekiel 9, those weapons of judgment will start out and literally go right there, the battle axe, and they'll be taken out. And then the land, two-thirds will be what? What does it say? Is it two-thirds will be destroyed and a third remain? And then, when? Then... The house of Joseph goes back into the land and then you have biblical Israel under the leadership of Joseph, which is Ephraim, the priesthood of the Malkitzedek and a reunification of all Israel.
but let them run to the land first and be taken out with two-thirds, because that's going to happen. From Ashkelon all the way up to Tel Aviv and all of that, you can have all your celebrations all you want, and it's going to burn. Because just like Ephraim that left and, and, and got ahead of the prophecies and they left Egypt 40 years earlier and died, book of Jasher, I believe in the 70th or 77th chapter, they died because they didn't understand biblical prophecy and they tried to get ahead. They tried to do it in their flesh and they all died. And then 40 years later was the time of the parting of the Red Sea and they came to the mountain right here and we see the seven adopted statuses of the true Israel. This is powerful stuff. We'll close in verse 8. That this, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the Benai Yahuwah. They're not the children of Yahuwah, but the Benai Yahuwah, the children of the covenant, are counted as seed. The children who've been regenerated just like Isaac and have come into the covenant are the children of Yahuwah. If you're one lawless or two following after the book of the law, you're still on one of the two broad roads straddling the covenant, the book of the covenant, and that will be your peril. This is sobering. But it is so important that we get this right and understand it in the days that we are living. In the days that we are living. Because it is the Zionist Ashkenazi cabal which is funding our politics and our war machines that is causing what we are seeing before us in the news each and every day. And those that will not, those nations that are trying to be independent of this globalist regime, which all goes back to the Zionists of the 19th century, and what they prophesied and hoped to fulfill in the next 150 years. Now we are coming to the apex of that with the invasion in Syria, all of this talk about North Korea. They are just chomping at the bit to literally destroy this world because they do not want people to be awakened to the biblical truth of biblical Israel, border expansion, and the reign of the millennial kingdom. said, so rather destroy it. But I believe we are about to go into the millennial reign, and I believe it will be a time of where the house of Israel will see the fulfillment, and we will begin to wonder and see great amazing advances in technology Great, amazing advances in a utopian world where Satan is bound for a thousand years. But before that happens, remember there's two, Jacob had two troubles. His first, Jacob's trouble, was when he met Esau. And then his greatest trouble, Jacob's great trouble or the great tribulation, was when his beloved son, Joseph, he thought was dead. So... We have to understand that if we're going to be going into this millennial, first of all, we have to expect that there is going to be a lesser Jacob's trouble. There is going to be a lesser Jacob's trouble like when he met Esau. I believe that will be 
the cleansing of the land, where it says in Zechariah, two-thirds of them will be destroyed. And then we'll have an awakening of who is Israel. And at that point, there will be the Illuminati, the globalists, the Zionists will be exposed for what they are. Nothing more than money-making warmongers that are literally trying to enslave the whole globe, the globalists in their wars of attrition. And we'll now, I believe, right at this very, very point where it could go either way. And we have to truly, truly pray that Yahweh's people will leave the soup, the pottage of Esau that is being served up with all this Christian Zionism, all this Messianic Zionism that's going to lead you on a highway to hell and wake up to the biblical truth that it is only the sons of Joseph that have the right to the name Israel. And get ready, because I believe we are in the midst of the trouble of troubles in this world. Questions, comments, and we'll go with um, chapter. We'll go with chapter nine and finish up with part two next week, just for time's sake. We do have uh, two internet questions. Yes. Um, the first one's from Mario. Uh, my Septuagint is Old Testament only. What do we use to look up New Testament writings? Uh, the polyglot, or what? What would you recommend? I'm not sure if I understand the question fully. What is he try, trying to do? Get, uh, get the Greek from the New Testament and find where that Greek is in the, in the, the Septuagint and then find what Hebrew it replaces? Yes, let's go with that. What's he trying to do? Do you know? Let's, um, let's put, put the mic over here because I think maybe Glenn might be able to help here. I'm not sure if I understood the question. I'm hoping that what he's saying is uh, that the, the Septuagint is a great reference for the Old Testament, but what do you use for the New Testament? Um, uh, what translation, English translation? I think it's more specifically talking about the English translation. Oh, what, what translation? Yes, like, like Young's or uh, whatever. Well, King James, you mean? Well, I, I, mainly, I mainly use the Restoration True Name Edition, but then um, I would use um, the, the, just go, sometimes just literally go literally, do the Young's Literal Translation. Um, and I do use the King James with the Strong's Numbers, of course, to get me back um, into the um, Septuagint. And um, basically, I just use eSword. <laughs> Press a button. <laughs> it's all right there. Blue letter Bible, eSword, messing okay. around on um, it. I have one more internet question, and that's from Clara. Or Clara. Um, wasn't Levi, Benjamin, and Judah not called Israel? And that was, correct. I think you did clarify that. Yeah, correctly. they were called Judah. They were never called Israel. Never, ever, ever. Ever. Chin it. Chin the mic. I just got a comment as to what I am observing throughout your teachings through the Melchizedek priesthood. Um, we've been shown that uh, in the Messianic, they, they are teaching that we're going to, 
or they are going to go up to Jerusalem. They're going to build a temple and they're going to start all that over and the, and the sacrifices. Mm -hmm. And they have not accepted Yahusha as their as their high priest. Oh, but they say it but with indeed, their mouth, but, but indeed, not indeed. They no. reject it. Indeed, they reject I it. Have oh, they'll, it's, it's, it's again, it's, it's you know, I, I grew up secular. I got converted when I was 24. I was unchurched. You've right. got to understand this. My wife also. We went into the church and we became leaders in the church but we were just astounded as being converted individuals as the, at the double talk right. that was around us because we were literalists. We were in the dark and then we were in the light. So just give it to me, literal. Tell me the truth. Don't compromise with me. I'm not going to live a compromised life. And I was astounded at the double talk. Oh, yes, we believe the Bible, but oh, no, we don't keep these commandments. And I'm like, what? And then I go in the Messianic movement for 10 years. It's the same double talk. It just went from the church and dressed up into another religion. But it's the same double talk. And it's like, but you're saying this, but you're not doing it. If you really believe, then do it. Do an animal sacrifice if you believe in doing the whole of the Torah. Do it. Why aren't you doing it? The double talk and the hypocrisy, it's the same religious vein. It just dressed up into something else. It's the same people. They just got hurt by the church and they went in and they started another little religion. But they're church hurt people, the majority. And that's the problem. It's not truth. No, by no means is it true. And you still got the double talk. And it infuriates me. And I'm sorry, you can see how crazy it makes me. But it's just like, it's can we just be honest? It's true. I'm, I'm just not that. It just, I am not that type of personality. And I can't abide to be around people like that. So what they irritate me. So what you're can you tell? So what you're teaching is the Melchizedek. Uh, Yahusha is the true Melchizedek. And you have to go through him in order to be. Israel. He is the way, the truth, and the light. Exactly. He is the Amen. only one that was permitted by Yahuwah to take the curse. And because it was denied to Moses, therefore Israel was put under the book of the law. But the one that it would be permitted to, then they would get the recipient blessings of returning to righteous Israelite covenant status. They would be true biblical Israel. And the only place you find true righteous biblical Israel is at the mountain prior to the covenant breach. That's the only place. All through the prophets, that is not true biblical Israel. That's right. It's a divided kingdom. And so here's my comment. If we believe in Yahushua and he's the Melchizedek, why would we give an ear to anybody who is teaching anything else other than Yahushua being the true sacrifice? Because the grand delusion is given an ear. And if we don't want any part of that the delusion, that grand second, speech, it's Second Thessalonians, isn't it? So the why, grand deception. Why would we give ear? Because in Deut uh, Deuteronomy chapter thirteen, it also talks about a false prophet, a dreamer of dreams. They mm -hmm. will come and they will have you serve another gods. And basically, that is exactly what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So. Why would we give an ear to that? And and so and the only reason why I'm saying that is because we listen to other teachers that that are in that. So why are we doing that? 
we need to stop. And that is my opinion, not to be listening. But to it can get people. Can, people can get very confused, and they can because you're hearing a why. different message. But this here is distinguished. They are serving other gods. They're going to Jerusalem. They're going to set up that temple. They're going to be sacrificing. Whenever Yahusha did it all. So why are we listening to anything? Because if they've got something to say that's in scripture, then Abba can bring it around from somebody who was speaking the truth to tell us exactly what we need. Mm. And all I and all I I guess where I'm going with this is we don't want no part of the grand illusion because we don't want to give ear to where we would be looking that way. We need to be looking on the straight and narrow path yeah. and looking where Yahusha is, mm. and that's kind of where Thank I'm you. Let's, uh, I think, back here. <laughs> Make sure I hold it to my chin. Chin it. I got a big mouth anyway. Uh, yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> Brother, I want to... Uh, say that I had a real, I've been struggling uh, this week, in fact, since I've been here, because uh, the truth has set me free. And all the things that Pam said, I totally 100% believe, because since I've been uh, in the scriptures, I, I, I made the excuse about being in the church and being a messianic. The excuse was I was blaming on someone else, but it was my fault because I didn't search the scriptures. I didn't take the Berean challenge. Mm. If we take, if we truly take the Berean challenge like we're supposed to, according to the scriptures, then we would be more, our ears would be more attentive to the teaching that you're bringing, that you're presenting to, to people out there on the, in the internet. It's difficult when you're really following it. It's difficult, very difficult. But I'm so blessed to be able to do it. And I'm pretty sure everyone in here, they're very blessed. And those on the internet, they're very blessed also. Thank you, brother, uh, for, for sharing all this stuff because some of this stuff goes over my head sometimes until I go in the Word. When I go in the Word myself, when I go in the Word, then I get, I get it. The Spirit comes to me. Okay, okay, I got it. Okay, so thank you, brother. Amen. Thank you. I think in front right there, um, Andrea. No, just a quick question. Um, when, you, when people like myself have gone through the prophecies about Israel in the Old Testament and have seen over and over that Yahuwah is going to restore them and that Yahuwah is going to honor his promises, I mean, the only one who honors promises, could you, or am I jumping the gun, give real quick, not just for myself but even the audience, um, and all Israel shall be saved in Romans 11. I know that's thrown out there and used as the guideline for Jews, Israel, and all of them will be saved. Do you have a take on that biblically? Or did I jump too far? You're two chapters ahead. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so yes, you did. It's a great question. Let's make sure that we answer it. But I want to, yes, I want to answer it in chapter 11. And if I skip over it, then hold me accountable. <laughs> One more question. Yeah. You talked about the, regenerate, um, the regenerated Jew, regenerated Aborigine. 
you did that correlation. Can you do the same thing, regenerated Jew, regenerated Gentile slash Christian? Or is your take on that what you've taught in the past, that a Christian has entered into the covenant of Yahusha and is now under mercy because they have not, their eyes have not been opened to the covenant that we have all entered into at Sinai? Yeah, so... That you can be um, co converted and um, go into the religion of Christianity, and you are under Yahweh's mercy, the withholding of his judgment, which is justly deserved. If you are under his grace, grace empowers you to keep the commandments of Yahweh. So Christianity, traditionally, what you're finding is you're actually under Yahweh's mercy, now, at a time when a person truly seeks and truly leaves listening to religion but seeks in the Word, then the Spirit will lead you and grace will empower you to seek the commandments. But to come into a true Israel-adopted status, you have to, by Yahushua, the accursed one, return to the true adopted Israel covenant of Exodus 19 to 24:11, because that is where you find Israel in its true biblical status. And that is only available by the accursed one, Yahushua, empowered by grace, which will lead you into the commandment keeping of the book of the covenant Torah, the covenants of promise, Ephesians 2, and therefore the fulfillment of all prophecy. So I hope that answered your question, but it's, it's very, man, it's powerful, isn't it? Matthew, since you talked about um, the divorce, could you just clarify the divorce of Judah and Israel how we've come back back into that relationship with Yahusha? Because that's one of the main things they're talking about right now in the chats. Yeah, well, exactly. Um, we had the division of the two kingdom, of the division of the one kingdom, the kingdom of Israel was split. And then you had the two kingdoms, the southern kingdom of Judah, which encompassed Levi, Benjamin, and um, Judah. And it became known as Judea. And then, of course, we had ten Israel, the ten northern tribes go up to Tel Dan. And again, they put in their two golden calves, and off we go again into apostasy. We have the division of the kingdom. And the fruition is coming back into the fullness of the restoration of Israel, which, like I just said, is that mountain experience. But along the way, we have the divorce. Yahweh divorces Israel. And this is, again, the putting away, the putting away of the unfaithful because something was discovered, Deuteronomy 24. That is something is discovered in her that she is what? A whoring or something that she did not bring forth was discovered and she was put away. But Yahweh now through what we spoke about in Romans chapter 7 and now because of his son becoming the accursed one now brings us back that we are now, he is now able to marry another and that's in the Romans 7 teaching brings back the reunification and the restoration after divorce Deuteronomy 
24. And this again, this is one letter. And it's easy for us. We're, going, we're spreading this out over 16 weeks or so to forget this is one letter. Would have blown the congregation's mind. Especially when we look at the context that this is after the edict of Claudius had expired and the Jews that were unregenerate, non-believers, were starting to come back into Rome and the Gentiles, Ephraim, the house of Joseph, ten Israel that were believers in Yahushua had taken over the congregations and they were all Yahushua-centric. They're all excited. And now these unregenerate Jews come back in and they're Israel? Well, no, that's not Israel. We're Israel. Israel, and, and this, is the, this is what's going on. And you can see the conflict. You can, I mean, you can just feel it. But you have to understand what was going on back there to really, really let it come alive and permeate your bones, you know? Makes me shudder just to think. But then I can take that and look at where we're at today and I can transfer that and see that we are in the very same world today where there are the three assumptions. Who is Elohim? Who is Israel? And what is the future status of Israel that's being taught? Oh, those are the big assumptions again, which is how this chapter opened. And then that just makes me go, oh my goodness, we have got to get this word out there because I'm surrounded by buffoons. (laughs) Not you guys, but I'm serious. We are surrounded by buffoons. Better. <laughs> All right, let's close in prayer. Abba, we thank you for your word, Abba. We ask, Abba Yahuwah, that you would truly bring forth the revelation, Abba, of your word, Israel, the priesthood, and the reunification of all Israel at the mountain, Abba, by the accursed one, your son. Abba, that you would give us the words to be able to communicate this to the people out there in the world, that, Abba, we would have the eyes and the ears to see. Abba, we pray that you would give us, Abba, just a hedge of protection, that you, Abba, are our shield. You are the shield, the Magan of Abraham, the shield of Abraham. And we pray, Abba, that you would truly go before us in all things in our day. Be our forward guard and our rear guard in Yahushua's mighty name. Amen. Amen. Amen.